Hey folks, Scott Weingart here for the ED ECMO podcast. Um, Joe, Joe, cue the music. Joe, hot bear, hot bear, where are you? Okay, no theme music. We're just going to deal with that. It's just me. Zach and Joe are not here today, and uh, I am speaking for them in their absence. Today, I'm going to discuss a little post-pump critical care with none other than Deirdre Murphy of the Alfred Hospital in Australia. She is brilliant. She is wonderful. She's been on the podcast before. Let's go right to it. So the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you've been on the ED ECMO podcast before. It was wonderful, but there was just a hint of something more, something I really wanted to hear about. That one little sentence in the last podcast where you're like, wouldn't it be interesting to talk about the critical care of these guys after coming back from Kath? And then you all left it there. With yeah, all of us just, just hanging, hanging, hanging. wanting, yeah. <laughs> wanting desperately to hear your thoughts on this because you are, after all, a guru of all things resuscitative oh, ECMO. If only, Scott. <laughs> so we are ready to go. Okay. Here's the situation. You have a patient you've done eCPR on. Uh, you've gotten them back. Uh, they're been sent to the cath lab, they got a stent in their LED, and now they bring them right back to you. And now you have 24 hours before you go off shift to deal with this patient and all of the fun they bring to the table. And I guess the first question I have for you is, what monitoring techniques and modalities would you want on this patient? Okay, well, I guess, first of all, since the patient has been you know, put on ECMO CPR quickly straight to the cath lab, we may have fairly limited monitoring um, at this stage. So, you know, at the very, um, at the very uh, basis of it, I'm going to make sure that we have some SATs monitoring. I'm sure that's already there. Um, but importantly, I'm going to make sure that that's on the right arm. Uh, and I'm also going to make sure we've got a uh, radial arterial line on the right side also. Um, and I think these things are very important to ensure that uh, the oxygenation that we're interested in is what's uh, going to the patient's brain and the patient's coronary arteries. So I'm going to make sure that I'm monitoring that SAT, not just purely monitoring what the patient is receiving from the ECMO circuit. Fantastic. And we've talked about differential hypoxemia and all the reasons why you'd want that. Now, when you say in addition, does that mean you'd also have an arterial line located elsewhere? Oh, no, it's just possible that the arterial line's already been put in. Um, there's something maybe in a femoral artery or whatever, but I just make sure that I am monitoring. Ideally, uh, I'd, I'd ideally have an arterial line on the right arm. Fantastic. Um, what, what other monitoring are you going to now place on the patient? Uh, the other monitoring I'm sure the patient will already have, but is also going to be very important is end-tidal CO2. So, you know, it's a ubiquitous monitor in um, ICU, if you like, uh, but it gives us a lot of information about ECMO patients and and what their perfusion is like. So we'll know a little bit from the arterial line trace what the patient's native circulation is like. Is it a flat line? In other words, uh, in other words are they fully dependent on ECMO support? Or do they have some pulsatility? So if they do have pulsatility, I would expect that I'm going to be seeing some end-tidal CO2. So the end-tidal CO2 is going to be very good as a marker of the patient's own circulation or their native circulation, um, but also to help us titrate um, ventilation so that we're not over-ventilating the patient, which is very easy to do in this circumstance. Fantastic. And now, do you believe in CVP to give you an idea of the patient's preload? coming back to both the circuit and the patient's heart? 
Uh, no, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> but I do think CVP is useful as a marker of right heart function, so that might be relevant. But you, I think in this in this situation, CVP is not going to be that helpful, and certainly wouldn't be something I would use for estimation of preload. Um, it's likely that I will need central access, though, and again, the patient's not likely to have um, had that done yet. So I want to make sure that I have access for vasoactive medications and other other things. So central access certainly will be useful. Is there anything particular you do safety-wise when inserting central catheters in a patient on pump due to the increased negative pressure that's in those vessels? Oh, sure. I usually do turn the pump down uh, briefly as I'm accessing the vessel. So just to sort of try and reduce that negative pressure and obviously the usual things in terms of head down and other safety measures. But it is a significant uh, consideration. If the patient's on positive pressure ventilation, they will be somewhat protected. Um, but it is it is a consideration in all ECMO patients, I think. Do you have any site you like better than others if you had your choice? Well, usually it's a matter of what's been left <laughs> after the ECMO is put in. And look, generally in this circumstance, I probably will go for an IJ site if there's femoral, femoral, femoral access. So staying away from those femoral sites, um, but also, uh, you know, avoiding uh, puncturing subclavian vessels in a patient who's now probably pretty anticoagulated. Fantastic. All right. So you have everything you wanted. All the monitors went in easily. You're golden. Now let's talk about using the information you get to optimize this patient. And I, sure. I, so I, I, you know, we have so many possible things we could adjust and figuring out which to do first and what to use to make the considerations can be hard. So I guess the first question is, at this point, what are you adjusting the ECMO flow to? What is your parameter or thoughts on that? Sure. Um, look, I think it's a really good question. And um, it, it's in the setting of ECMO CPR, again, it's likely that we've got small cannulas. So we did one, I did one a couple of weeks ago. We put in a 15 French um, arterial cannula and a 17 French uh, venous cannula. So, you know, in some circumstances, you might think, oh, I'd like to dial this up and get much higher flow, uh, but that might be not be possible. So you will be limited by the size of the cannulas that you've got. Um, I guess the other consideration at this stage is that in an ECMO CPR case, again, you've probably put in the cannulas without a distal perfusion cannula. So that will probably be a priority in the, in the first, um, you know, on the patients arriving back to ICU um, to ensure that they do have good perfusion of their um, leg with the arterial cannula in. And we find even with a 15 French, if the patient's significantly vasoconstricted, there may still be very poor flow to the limb. So um, it is routine for us to put in a... Um, a distal perfusion cannula um, into the uh, superficial femoral artery to ensure that that flow gets to the leg and you don't end up with a patient who's got a threatened limb in addition to all of the other issues. Absolutely. So then, would, would you, for the sake of argument, would it be fair to say that you will take as good a flow as you could get given the limitations of your cannula size? That's right, exactly. I think it's like what they say to kids in kinder, isn't it? You get what you get and you don't get upset. There you but, go. <laughs> um, but yes, I think the I, ideally, if the patient has some native perfusion, that's certainly you want to certainly encourage that uh, because it's going to avoid issues like differential hypoxia. It's going to avoid um, buildup of clot in the heart, etc. So we would be encouraging that heart with inotropes. Uh, so low dose inotropes to make sure we maintain any pulsatility that's there. 
and generally, you know, using the circuit to provide as much support as we can within the limits of what we can do with smaller cannulae. Fair enough. So, yeah. Now, is there any parameter that you're going to use to say this flow is just inadequate for this patient? Is there any monitoring you're going to do for that? Are you going to look at what the patient's central venous oxygen saturation is, for instance, or um, any of the labs you're going to draw off the pump to say this flow is insufficient for this patient? Or are you using more global markers? Like, is the patient clearing lactate or stuff like that? Oh, absolutely. I, I think um, it's uh, um, it's going to be a mix of the global markers, which we use for all our patients, I suppose, lactate. If there is urine output, fantastic. Um, you know, what, what the blood gases are doing, creatinine, etc. But um, also, uh, I think markers such as uh, central venous sat, uh, I'd probably use a, a, a venous sat just pre-oxygenator because that's going to be like the essentially a mixed venous sat for that patient. So the pre-oxygenator sat is going to be quite useful also. Um, but yeah, I guess these are the things, as well as the patient's hemodynamics, you know, how they're, um, how they're traveling in terms of, you know, blood pressure, um, et cetera, as well. That's going to help you get an overview of whether that is adequate for that patient at that time. Fair enough. And at this at this time point, I would imagine the patient will still be sedated. And I should have said earlier, temperature monitoring is going to be something that's very important to maintain that um, patient's temperature. And thankfully, that's very easy to do on an ECMO circuit. We can just um, put on the water cooler and um, maintain the temperature at a very even uh, keel. Now, that's interesting because, you know, I've gone to 36 for most of my post-arrest, but for ECMO, we're still taking them down to 32 to 34 with the thought that since we're not providing full support, that the hypothermia may uh, actually match the body's demands to what we are able to provide. All right. Now, you hinted before, Deirdre, about management with vasopressors. How are you titrating vasopressors in these patients? What numbers are you looking for and what's going to make your determination about how to change the settings on that vasopressor infusion? Oh, sure. Um, so I guess there's, to my mind, there's sort of two types of patients, if you like. There seems to be the patients who get that profound SERS response, if you like, that is, whether it's due to the pump itself or ischemia reperfusion, I guess it's analogous to what happens patients after cardiopulmonary bypass sometimes. So those very vasodilated patients, I guess vasopressors are going to be required to um, maintain um, that sort of perfusion pressure. And I guess to some extent, we're going to have to pick a perfusion pressure and sort of classically about 65, but who knows what it really needs to be. Um, but we have to pick a pressure to aim for with those vasopressors. Um, and that may well depend on adequacy of flow and adequacy of how much the circuit is able to provide, etc. Um, but there probably is another group also in whom um, they remain quite vasoconstricted. They may have had a lot of adrenaline. And this happened to me with a patient quite recently. Um, I was looking after it. They'd, uh, the patient had had lots and lots of adrenaline, which was probably still circulating. They had a blocked right coronary artery uh, that was opened up. And, and following that, that patient remained quite vasoconstricted. And um, in that setting, afterload reduction is really key. So inotropy and afterload reduction. So in some patients, we will be managing a vasodilated state, but definitely not in all. I think there are a group of patients in whom they remain vasoconstricted. And to some extent, I think um, I'm always mindful of the fact that ECMO per se, VA ECMO uh, peripherally, is not a good treatment for acute heart failure. 
So you've got a heart that's failing. You want to maintain some pulsatility. And we give them a treatment that acutely increases their afterload. Um, so in that situation, I'll usually try and use an inotrope, maybe an inodilator, maybe some vasodilators, and if anything, turn down the pump a little bit to reduce that afterload. Because what can happen in those patients is that um, the acute afterload from the pump, uh, et cetera, can cause that you know, marginal heart to fail even more. And um, that can lead to issues with, um, particularly if there is any um, aortic insufficiency, for instance, where the, the ventricle is not vented and you can get acute distension of the left ventricle. Absolutely. Does that make sense? I've it, probably it, it makes, <laughs> wandered on makes, a little bit there. No, not at all. It makes perfect <laughs> sense. Um, it, and it, it, it ties in somewhat to the next question, which is how do you manage volume status on these patients? Let's say you're getting subtle chattering of your venous cannula. Uh, how much volume are you giving? What are you making the determinations on? What volume would you give these patients? Sure. Uh, so I guess with fluid, like as in all things, it, it has to be just the right amount, doesn't it? And, and nobody can really say what that right amount is. Um, I think if there is chattering of the venous line, um, it's important to work out, you know, there's, I guess there's a number of causes for that. It may be that we're simply trying to run the pump too fast. So turning down the speed a little bit may uh, settle things down. Um, it may be that the patient's becoming acutely hypovolemic. They may be bleeding. So we see lots of complications of mechanical CPR that may be a little bit occult. Um, the venous cannula may not be sitting in an optimal position. So I'll usually try and look at that on echo and make sure it's not up against the intraatrial septum, for instance, or somehow obstructed in terms of the flow. But those things being equal, usually some, some fluid is going to be necessary to treat that sort of um, venous insufficiency or uh, access insufficiency, if you like. Um, and how much to give? Well, <laughs> I'll certainly try not to give too much, but uh, sometimes you're caught between a rock and a hard place. And if that access insufficiency continues and those measures to treat it haven't improved, then I guess there's no, you have to give the fluid. Um, I, I don't usually, I mean, I don't have a very strong opinion between crystalloid and colloid, but I'll give uh, some of either crystalloid or colloid blood if they require it. Very good. All Sitting right. on the fence kind of answer. No, it's the, I think it's the right answer, though. Any, anything definitive, I think, would not be a supported answer. So I think that's good. Sure. Um, let's, let's move to ventilation, both native and circuit. Uh, what CO2 are you shooting for with your sweep gas? Um, well, probably it, it depends. The patient may still be quite acidemic, uh, in which case I'll probably try and get their CO2 down a little bit. But generally, I'll aim for a sort of CO2 about you know, 35 to 40 uh, in that range. So um, as you say, the main determinant of, of that will be the sweep gas more than likely um, because the patient is not likely to be contributing much from a ventilation point of view. So I will be managing that with the sweep gas. And are you, and I think I had spoken to Stephen about this when we had our initial interview, and he said there was some tentative thought to actually adjusting the mixer to potentially, in patients who are hyperoxic, um, lower the FiO2 they were getting through the circuit. Uh, we've always just run them straight on 100%. Uh, what, what's the current status at the Alfred on that? Um, I think where possible, and uh, we do try and adjust the, uh, adjust the oxygen to the mixer, so air and oxygen blend, so that they do get um, 
and the patent PaO2 ends up being about 60 to 80. Sometimes that can be a little bit tricky because things can change. It's a dynamic situation. The heart may be quite stunned. And as you know, when the patient, the sicker the patient's heart is, the more they'll be dependent on the ECMO circuit and the higher their PaO2 will be because it'll be describing ECMO flow. And as things change, it may be describing as a heart improves, we might be seeing an O2 that describes more what's happening in their lungs. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a tension between those things, but we certainly will turn the uh, FiO2 to the oxygenator down to try and uh, achieve an O2 that's probably, and who knows what that range should be, but I guess emerging evidence does suggest that um, hyperoxia may be damaging post-arrest also. Absolutely. So then let's talk about the native lung. What what are you doing in terms of the ventilation while on ECMO? Let's say the patient has minimal pulsatility. The end title is low. What are you doing on these guys? So really, um, our, our aim in that situation with ventilation is just to keep the lungs open, um, if you like. So we'll, we'll run a very low respiratory rate, um, but maintain some PEEP, uh, both as an LV afterload sort of reduction attempt, um, but also to just, you know, keep those lungs open um, and, uh, you know, just low distending pressures, very minimal ventilation, you know, six times two or 300, for instance, in a typical 70 kilo adult. Um, I guess if the end tidal starts to increase, then we might need to uh, look at that ventilation again and, and titrate it to an end tidal that's, uh, you know, avoid having the end tidal too low if the patient has low pulsatility, it's going to be low. But if the patient's pulsatility improves, then I think we can try and uh, bring the end tidal to within a range that's acceptable. Fair enough. What hemoglobin are you running these patients at? Um, <laughs> this, uh, that's a loaded question. I, I know think. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to pick an answer out of my head. Uh, let's see. I, I guess, again, with these patients... Uh, the, the, one of the main considerations can be acute hemorrhage, in which situation the hemoglobin target's likely to be a little bit higher, say 90, for instance, to give you that buffer zones for, for acute hemorrhage. Um, if not, um, I probably wouldn't be quite sort of comfortable with keeping them at a 70 hemoglobin, which is fairly standard for many of our patients, just given their um, given their unique considerations, but probably somewhere between 80 and 90. Perfect. And how anticoagulated are you running your post-arrest eCPR patients? Yeah, again, that depends on um, the, degree of, uh, the degree of bleeding that we're encountering. Some patients don't bleed at all, it's fair to say, but um, bleeding can be a fairly major consideration. Um, if there is bleeding, I think there's, uh, it depends on how significant that bleeding is. Sometimes we have to stop the anticoagulation altogether. Um, and uh, that's not always popular, obviously, with the cardiologists who've <laughs> just put in their stents and uh, want to make sure they don't thrombose, etc. cetera. But, um, yeah, there's a tension between those two aims. From point of view of the ECMO circuit, I think we know that it's quite safe to run a VA ECMO uh, without anticoagulation you know, for lengths of time if required, and we'll certainly do that. Fantastic. Is there any other last points you want to make or mistakes you've seen or anything you want to talk about about the critical care management of a post-ECPR patient? Um, I 
Not really. I think, Scott, at the end of the day, these patients, um, they're very tricky to manage. Um, I'm just thinking about that 24-hour shift. It's likely to be a really difficult shift. Indeed. <laughs> to some extent, um, there's not a lot in the literature as of yet to guide us in, in terms of answering those specific questions. Um, I guess to some extent, I think the more sort of normal we can make their uh, physiological milieu, the better. Uh, and making sure we don't forget things like, you know, if they've got a aspiration pneumonitis that we treat that. If they've collapsed one lobe of their lung, we treat that. We're not fo uh, solely focusing on the ECMO circuit. I guess to me that would be one of the salient points. Treat the patient as a whole. There you go. Well, I, I guess on that point, then, is is there any source you recommend? You know, we're looking for things to give to our students on this, and there's not much great stuff out there. Is there any source you've come across as a good starting place for people just new to the world of uh, critical care ECMO? Um, well, I think the a really good starting point is the Red Book. Um, the Red Book being the uh, Elso, book, yep. uh, the Elso manual, and I think that that gives you a good overview of um, you know different aspects of ECMO care, and I've certainly referred to it many many times and found it found it quite useful. Um, but you know, I think these podcasts are fantastic. Uh, by the way, they're they're really useful. I've listened to them also, and I think they're they're a great source of information for for people starting out as well. Well, thank you so much for giving your time. Uh, we probably will be hitting you up again another six or eight months from now because you are just such a wealth of information. Oh, thanks very much, Scott. Lovely to talk to you.